Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. You're tuned into the New Books in Media and Communication channel. I'm your host, John Sullivan, from Muhlenberg College here in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I'm one of the co-hosts of the New Books in Media and Communication channel, along with my colleague, Dr. Jeff Pooley. I'm really pleased to have my guest today. Uh, Her name is Bridget Connor. Her current post is Lecture in Culture, Media, and Creative Industries at King's College in London. Uh, Dr. Connor's research interests are in screen production studies, gender theory, and critical creative labor studies. And she's just written a brand new book entitled Screenwriting, Creative Labor, and Professional Practice, which was just published by Rutledge with a 2014 publication date. She's on the line with me now all the way from London. Bridget, welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, John. It's great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Uh, I want to just start out with a quick question about, since this is your first book, I gather, and you're writing it all about the creative labor of screenwriting, uh, what interests you particularly in screenwriter? Have you been a screenwriter yourself? Uh, what got you interested in looking at screenwriting? Ah, uh, great first question, John. I love this. And it's interesting because during a, the research for this project, that was actually a question I got quite a bit. Um, are you a screenwriter yourself? So. Let me tell you a little bit um, about the background. I've never been a professional screenwriter, but I have uh, been, let's say, a kind of interested amateur, Um, maybe like lots of us, um, and it's interesting to think about the kind of aspiration. But I I started out, I've always been interested in in creative work and um, in researching kind of creative industries, especially film and television production. My earlier first project was about um, film production in New Zealand, where I'm originally from. And um, once I embarked on this project, initially I've always been interested and I was going to study um, film production workers, you know, kind of in a range of professions. Um, but I kind of realized, you know, that was going to be a pretty big project. And interestingly, as I was developing the kind of ideas and thinking about the theoretical framework, trying to understand what it might be, this term creative labor, the uh, writer's strikes happened in Los Angeles, those notorious writer's strikes in kind of 2007, 2008. And they kind of really captivated me, as I think they did a lot of people, the, just the imagery of uh, writers on strike, the kind of placards, the fact that it was a, a creative profession, kind of, you know, holding out the placards and speaking about their conditions of work, uh, it really kind of grabbed my attention at just the right time. Um, I was also at the same time kind of teaching film. I was teaching film students. So there was kind of confluence of factors. And I guess because of my, my ongoing interest, I studied screenwriting um, some years ago. So it kind of started to develop as all of these things came came together. And I'm still an interested amateur, shall we say. Yeah. And I love to, I don't know about you, but I love to read scripts as well. So I'm kind of interested in that way and the way that scripts are now kind of published and so on. So that's how it 
started to germinate and develop. Right. And that for me, that's so interesting because so much of what you write about in screenwriters is that there's a kind of merging of different types of experiences and backgrounds and professions in screenwriting. So it's perhaps not out of the norm to have someone like yourself who's interested in screenwriting, who may have done a little bit of screenwriting and kind of moves in and out of different writing styles. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, I kind of, as I was even thinking about writing the introduction to the book, and it's difficult to even really conceive of and think about screenwriting as some kind of a discrete category, right? I mean, so many kind of creatives, in fact, all kinds of creative workers might be doing lots of different kinds of writing or creating or producing at any one time. So it's interesting to kind of actually see where the border areas of those professions might be and how they kind of bleed into one another. I think that's fascinating. Mm Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about your orientation to the book of screenwriting as an industry and a particular form of creative labor, right? Where, where are you kind of situating this work theoretically and what, what scholarly orientations bring you to this, uh, this field of screenwriting? Well, this is interesting. Again, a kind of the, the theoretical framework developed uh, over a period of time. I mean, originally I, I come from film studies, so I come from that traditional film studies background. Um, but once I started the project, I was in a department of, of media and communications, and my supervisor was uh, a sociologist and a sociologist who was especially interested in uh, gender and post-feminist theory. So all of those things were kind of coming together as I started to do the work. And I became very interested in this term, creative labor. Um, I was working with Angela McRobbie at Goldsmiths College, who was really important in kind of developing this term and thinking about it. And her early work has been obviously really important. And creative labor is interesting. I mean, it's, it's in some ways uh, something of a subfield in, in media and communications, especially I think in the last decade, it's kind of started to, to come together, I think, as, a, as, a, as its own perhaps subfield of inquiry, which brings together, I think, kind of sociologies of work, political economy, um, and kind of, you know, traditional critical media theory together. So I was drawing on those, I'm drawing on those traditions in the book. I think the other thing that was really interesting, and, and another term that I think is useful and that kind of beca- gained more currency theoretically as I was working on this is production studies, which comes out, of course, of particular work that's happened in, in North America from writers like John Caldwell, Vicki Mayer, um, And that field, of course, what has been really interesting is to think about how to study um, production cultures, media production cultures of different kinds, which might be about studying, you know, how workers experience their work in particular kinds of media production um, and how that labour is kind of experienced, performed, how it is also, you know, managed on a larger kind of macro political economy scale. And I think, therefore, when we're looking at creative labor, at least for me, thinking about screenwriting, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky project. But to think, on the one hand, about that macro level, how the, how the organization of work in a particular market or markets happens, but then also how that, how that experience and how that organization affects you know, subjects, people in their day-to-day lives and what those working lives might look like. And I think for me, that's a real uh, benefit of this book because uh, you quote Caldwell's Production Cultures book throughout. And I think that's this is a great example of how you might use his framework, his cultural industrial model, and apply it to one aspect of a media production industry, in this case, screenwriting. So for me, I really think I see those close connections that you're laying out here um, in a really kind of unique way. 
but there's a way in which screenwriting, uh, the kind of labor that that Caldwell's writing about in the production cultures book, is seems to be more the kind of classic visual oriented labor associated with uh, film production, with you know directors of photography and directors and producers, those kinds of folks, and you're writing just really specifically about screenwriters and as a form of creative labor you say that it's in some ways very distinct from other types of industrialized labor that's associated with film and television production can you say a little bit about that yeah and this is where i kind of was really interested to understand i mean i guess on the one hand if, if we're interested in looking at a particular industry we want to know I guess, yeah, what might link it to other kinds of work in film or television production, for example? What, what kinds of similar labor dynamics link writers in a, in a production chain, for example? But, but we also, I think it's really important to think about, yeah, what is distinct and what, what makes you a screenwriter one day and then possibly, a, I don't know, a producer another day or, or what are the specificities of that work? And yeah, I think it was, for me, really important to then think about the industrial orientations of that work. I mean, when I when I interviewed and talked to screenwriters about their work and asked them, okay, well, what does your typical workday look like? Or what distinguishes writing screenwriting for you as opposed to the other kinds of work you might do? What was interesting here was that there was often a, a, a double movement. On the one hand, screenwriters talk about... Um, what is distinct about their work in relation to working on your own and working on your craft as a screenwriter, developing the form, um, coming up with ideas, crafting scenes and characters and so on. But it was impossible for them to talk about their work without then talking about the larger industrial machinery in which they were often right, working simultaneously and at different stages depending on the project. And, and what was really interesting here was the way they talked about... Um, well, both collaboration, the collaborative possibilities of that medium, working within the industry with other people to develop a script, to hopefully, you know, develop it towards production, um, to write and rewrite the script. But at the same time, there's also something unique there, I think, about screenwriting and the limited autonomy that screenwriting might engender as a particular kind of writing. Because often when screenwriters start to collaborate, they also perhaps often lose control of what is unique and original about what they are doing. Because right in, in the kind of industrial form of writing, it often means working with other people but not necessarily maintaining autonomy and control over that work. And that then created, created I think, some really interesting and exciting possibilities for screenwriting, which made it appeal over other kinds of writing, but also a huge amount of pain often and, and tension, right? When I think, you know, often control was was lost. And that's when you kind of get those stories about industrial pain, the, the, the problems of the industry, how hard it can be for screenwriters, which in a way was quite unique, I found, and unlike perhaps other kinds of writing for theatre or fiction or, or, or journalism even, those kinds of things. And those other kinds of writing, it seems to me, are are forums where the the author of the writer in many ways is center stage. They get celebrated in the press. If it's a journalist, you always get a byline. If it's uh, some form of 
uh, other type of writing books or magazines, clearly you you develop a kind of reputation and you're known not just by insiders in the industry, but by readers who become familiar with your work and maybe seek out your work. Whereas it seems in screenwriting that there's that kind of labor that goes on is often invisible in a way. And, and that screenwriters struggle with that, with that visibility issue. Absolutely, absolutely. And I kind of, it's again interesting how so often uh, we would talk, uh, sit down maybe and talking with a screenwriter and um, the invisibility kind of again might work, work uh, and cut both ways perhaps, right? On the one hand, screenwriter, screenwriters would some, sometimes say, but it's so nice to be invisible, right? We can get on with our work. Um, it's nice to kind of pass over what you've done to others and you move on to other things. But at the same time, I think often that was a real source of difficulty for writers. And it has material consequences, of course. I mean, if a writer is invisible, then it's often very, that's a calculated strategy, perhaps, by other creative inputs to, right, retain control of copyright, right, remove that copyright from, from the writer and then develop it for you know, their own remuneration purposes. So I think the invisibility was kind of, it's perhaps felt psychologically, but then also very materially as well. And I did get a general sense, certainly from, I mean, I spoke to writers who were who were based in London, perhaps often traveling to Europe or working in Europe and or the US. Um, but there was a real sense and there were some kind of movements towards a collective identity in which they were really speaking about how they wanted screenwriting to be a more visible pr profession. They felt that was important, that perhaps their rights were being eroded um, perhaps more than ever before and that those needed to be kind of reinstated in some way. So I think that invisibility issue is, is really a crucial one. One of the things that maybe would surprise listeners but uh, didn't necessarily surprise me was that there's a lot of uh, screenwriting that goes on around reality television programming right? Uh, how many of your writers were actually writing for live or quote-unquote non-scripted television? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I, I the empirical sample I drew, I drew on in terms of interviews was not big. It was 17 interviews with, with writers at different stages in their career and who were all based in London at the time that I spoke to them. And most were writing for at different times, both film and television, but often television was the more stable, uh, steady income stream. Um, there were a few who had experimented in what has been called unscripted programming and a nice little, you know, kind of development of the, of the, the laboring language. Um, but most, at least in the UK, I mean, there were, for many of them, quite regular gigs with organisations like the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, ITV, Channel 4. Those were often seen to kind of be, be the so-called bread and butter. And then perhaps they were also working, say, on feature film scripts, normally as kind of a more passion project on the side, things that they could do if they had time. Um, so there certainly was discussion about the the kind of possibilities of things like reality TV that might earn a gain income, but oftentimes I found writers weren't so keen to speak about that, right, as, as part of their professional biography. And, and there doesn't seem to be as many opportunities for that kind of work here as there are in the US. It really seems to be pro proliferating in the US, this kind of whole new these whole new genres and forms of work which are supposedly unscripted, although, of course, that's not the case. But, again, that kind of terminology is a nice way to kind of 
invisibilize the work again, right? A script writer, it seems, yeah, is 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 really invisible in an un, unscripted programming format, which is fascinating. Which, uh, to me, also contrasts with the ways in which script writing and almost all forms of creative production are are represented through forms of audiovisual media as very romanticized and very creative in a way and absolutely non-industrial. Uh, that those that those forms of labor are celebrated in those films. I'm thinking of films like Adaptation and others, where the entire plot structure is built around the life of one screenwriter. But when the reality of that kind of industrial labor is something that's well invisible. Indeed, yeah, it is, and I think that's. I mean, this is another area that I think is fascinating. That kind of yeah, the the representations of of this kind of work or creative work, as you say, generally. Um, in, for example, film and television is, is really interesting, the way that still this kind of uh, often the creative genius kind of image is, is a real powerful one, I think, in many kinds of popular culture and adaptation is a great, a great example of this, right? Um, and there are some really interesting portraits of, uh, of screenwriters, uh, what their work looks like, the kind of typical um, often you know, genius really toiling and struggling with the the weight of his of his creativity and the difficulties that that requires, um, and that is often you're right. That we, we're not necessarily seeing images of the the kind of industrial backlot, you know, the the Hollywood backlot or that that kind of thing. Although I must say there are a few interesting more recent examples. Um, I don't know if, if any of your listeners have heard of this the t- the TV show. Um, episodes, which has a, an interesting uh, representation of a husband and wife writing team, a British husband and wife writing team who moved to Hollywood and have this very difficult time. And that's probably one of the first times I've seen kind of writers sitting in a studio, kind of you know, kind of writing bits for the script and then having them rejected and or not by the by the production team. So that's an interesting development. We're starting to perhaps see some some interesting representations. But also I think in terms of doing this kind of research, it's, it's interesting, and John Caldwell talks about this, how do we study a production culture when so much of that work might not be access- easily accessible to us as academics or easily visible in its own right? I think that's kind of a really interesting you know, set of methodological questions. Well, that's a nice segue, I think, to... Uh, I wanted to talk about one of the, the early chapters, I think the first chapter, actually, where you kind of travel, we could take a fascinating trip back in time to the early 20th century, uh, all the way up through the golden years of the Hollywood studio era, to look at historically how screenwriting developed as a profession during that time period, how it's changed. Uh, Can you say a little bit about perhaps that and the kind of myth-making that went into how screenwriting developed as as a profession? Yeah, I mean, I, I, this was, I really loved delving into this history. I mean, I, again, I uh, my early work was, I said, film studies, but also I, I studied history when I was younger, and I kind of have this this part of me that just is a, a bit of a history nut. So I really went down a, a rabbit hole reading these these fascinating histories that be, kind of began, I mean, most that have been written have been written very much about, you know, the early development of screenwriting in the Hollywood milieu. Um and it's so interesting to, to look not only at the, the substance of these histories, but, but how they are written, which, who, which kind of figures in those histories are, are kind of given primacy, are part of the canon. Um, 
And it's it was fascinating. I, I looked at yeah the, the ways in which the repeated stories that were told in the history in the histories, for example, about the very very early days of screenwriting. I mean, one of the I found the the repeated um, tropes, and I do kind of call this a form of myth making in the in the book, um, was the idea that that very early in the days of screenwriting, it was a it was a very open kind of and um, egalitarian profession. One in which attracted men and women from all over the United States, if not beyond, um, that in fact allowed screenwriting was also quite well remunerated at that time, more so than directors in the very early days of, of Hollywood. So it's kind of often in the histories um, presented as this exciting frisson of, of early development where everyone is kind of multivalent. So not only are they writing screenplays, but they might also be producing, making costumes. Uh, you know, there's this kind of wonderful language used about the, these early days. And what I found was at, at a certain point in time, and, and a number of these really great historians look at the point at which, as the as the golden era of Hollywood kind of kicks into a higher gear and we get the rise of the studio system in the very early days, maybe the 1920s, you start to, you start to see changes, which for many of those historians mean uh, the kind of, I mean, I really, I call it degradation, the degradation of that early frisson of create, creative freedom. So the industrialization of the profession, the monetization of the profession means that um, in many ways it becomes more about a set series of steps, more about rules and formulae of writing that start to be, that start to be uh, presented in early screenwriting manuals, for example. Um, you also get the... A lot of the histories talk about the, the fact that in the early days there were as many men as women writing, sorry, or as many women as men writing writing screenplays, and that changes as well. Um, into the 20s, you start to see much less women working and able to sustain, um, sustain, the, sustain those careers. And that exclusion and the fact that then screenwriting largely becomes a preserve of, of men continues really from the the 30s onwards and so I found those kinds of elements really interesting because this seemed to me to feed into other other myths that I think start to kind of percolate through the histories um, certain kinds of images of the screenwriter uh, as a pioneer um, for example as as often a maverick these are really interesting myths and you get these lovely quotes and images of screenwriters that kind of feed into I think this myth making but I think those myths are quite powerful and they are, are also, I, 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 I argue in the book, exclusionary um, and they kind of gain purchase and I think in that way they increasingly exclude, I think, as well as include writers in the, in the profession. Um, and that myth-making process arguably is, is, I mean, it's relative to the fact that this is a creative profession, right? It's about making myths for the screen, but I think it's interesting to see how in many ways the histories, the stories that are told are actually part of that that myth-making process as well. Yeah, I just remember back to um, reading a lot about uh, the people like the writer William Faulkner, who, you know, spent time in both arenas, obviously a well-known author, but then at one point he really had to pay the bills, and so he sort of became a quasi-screenwriter for Hollywood, and there's, there's a number of stories about that with famous authors whose books are now part of the literary canon, but who also spent time in the trenches, so to speak, in Hollywood screenwriting and had much the same experience that became very disillusioned with it because of the, 
the formulaic, formulaic nature of that type of writing. Absolutely. It's, it's so great. You come up with these, uh, these stories of F, F. Scott Fitzgerald is another great example. William Faulkner is great. I mean, of course, because, uh, I mean, F. Scott Fitzgerald then wrote The Last Tycoon, right? They start to kind of, those experiences filter into their other kinds of writing. But it's so interesting, these stories, I mean, there's some kind of exoriating quotes that you see from someone like Faulkner about the kind of, you know, the, oh, yeah, have a look at the book if you're interested, perhaps, but about the kind of real degradation of the of the writer's inherent creativity that, that Hollywood um, that Hollywood leads to. So there's all these tales of disillusionment, um, descent into kind of booze and so forth. But they're, they're all quite kind of lively and interesting as well. So they're very it's very colourful. One of the uh, just to switch gears to kind of a, one of the later chapters in in the book, and I think one of my favourite parts of the book. Uh, is when you kind of look at the ways in which today's screenwriters might access some of that history. And that happens mostly through these manuals for screenwriting. I mean, I read Sid, Sid Field's uh, kind of text on screenwriting uh, in my teen years when I fancied myself a budding screenwriter as well. And uh, But I never stopped to think about the kind of rhetorical constructions in some of those books that serve as a kind of very important socializing role for today's screenwriters to tell them a little bit about the screenwriting profession. Can you can you say a little bit about these screenwriting how-to books? Yeah, well, I again this was a this is so interesting and it's interesting to talk about developing this kind of a production study. I mean, initially I I too needed to learn some of the language, right? I was interested in okay, what what do screenwriters read when they want to when they want to learn or they want to develop a particular skill set? Um, do they read these books? So I kind of started using them almost as a as a form of language learning for myself and as a way to immerse myself in this kind of culture. Um, but I kind of increasingly just then became interested in them as 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 a source of, of data, right? I mean, they're really interesting as uh, as a genre, and I think the genre kind of goes beyond the, the – there are the books, of course, but there are now, um, you know, there are the seminars the, and the tours that the particular guru kind of authors go on. For example, Robert McKee and Sid Field is another great example. Um, the kind of online seminars, the podcasts, the magazines, it's a really interesting kind of culture in itself. And I think these the books play a really interesting role um, in in a number of ways. I mean, on the one hand, I think they're an interesting site as a source for as a way to understand how screenwriting is constructed and how it is taught. I mean, in the larger project, I was also doing some some um, observation of screenwriting teaching. So I was interested in what kinds of books were present in the classroom, for example, what kind of writers were used in class. Um, because, of course, also screenwriters often are struggling to make a living. Um, it's not often easy to make a living on writing alone. And teaching, like for many creative professions, becomes a really viable option for a steady income stream. Um, and so I became really interested in, okay, so looking at these books, I mean, what do they say that screenwriting is about? What does the work look like if you read a, a number of these manuals? I think they are often, um, and if you talk to screenwriters about them, they're often incredibly helpful and valuable as, as to provide a set of tools to help with solving problems. But I think they also are a form of discipline, right? They discipline screenwriters. Um, 
They tell screenwriters, right, what you should do and what you should definitely not do. Uh, they kind of inculcate screenwriters, especially budding screenwriters, into what a screenplay, supposedly a screenplay for a largely mainstream blockbuster-type film might look like, how to write particular genres, particular characters. And there are often, there's a really interesting kind of a formula to the books themselves, which I think is interesting. And, I mean, some screenwriters and other commentators in these worlds have been kind of increasingly concerned, I think, about the, the, the potential power that these kinds of manuals can have, the way that certain gurus, if they strike a, you know, if they strike a chord, you know, the kinds of tools they suggest that screenwriters use can then come up again and again in the films that might be being produced and that perhaps there's an argument that they might be facilitating, you know, some kind of a... Um, sanitization, perhaps, of the world of screenwriting, the possibilities for screenplays. But I suppose, to, a, to an extent, I think that argument is an interesting one. But I, I think also screenwriting manuals are really important for the day-to-day -day lives of screenwriters. They, they're a form of, they're an extra form of income, possibly, for screenwriters. Screenwriters often also write, write these books. Um, so I don't think they can necessarily simply just be dismissed, right? Which is often an easy thing to do. Oh, those manuals, you know, they don't they don't teach us anything. They're kind of useless, and you know, you only write them if you can't make a living screenwriting. I don't think that's actually true at all. It's much more complex, and I think they're often a really they're a really important part of the culture. And John, I think it's interesting to note. I was in a big bookshop in London um, the other day, and I found my book amongst the How to Be a Screenwriter manuals. Uh, so interesting. <laughs> there's interesting. an interesting dialogue happening on the shelves there, which is, yeah, I think is, a, is an interesting. I have to tell you that that could only happen in, in the UK because yeah, American bookstores don't stock academic books anymore. Right, yeah, how interesting. I mean, I was thinking, yeah, I wonder, should it be in cultural studies? But hey, no, it's, it's with the other, the How to Be a Screenwriter book. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, you you kind of talk about these how-to manuals in such interesting ways. And what I note also is that a pretty consistent theme is that they're all about how to succeed in the traditional forms of creative industries, in the film and television industries. So, Or did you notice that there were some that said, well, there's an alternative way, a, a backdoor to Hollywood perhaps, by making your own films, putting them on YouTube, and trying to get noticed, and then doing that kind of thing by writing for more alternative, newer forms of media. Did you notice that or was it more specifically geared towards traditional forms of cultural production? That's a good question. I mean, I think on the one hand, I suppose by dint of just the research design, uh, the, the, the manuals I looked at really closely were often the kind of the, the canonical texts, the ones that perhaps had gone through a number of um, publishing runs were still in circulation, the kind of Robert McKee story, Sid Field's, you know, screenplay, those kind of classic texts. But I, I, I think there are some interesting new perhaps, I mean, they're kind of sub-genres with, within the widest how to be a screenwriter uh, genre, and I think there is an interesting kind of sub-genre emerging of things like, and it's not necessarily always peak just to screenwriting, but perhaps, yeah, simply how to get your ideas out there, how to write for, yeah, YouTube, um, or how to write simply for, you know, perhaps transmedia platforms, how to write, um, you know, more a kind of a story world, perhaps, that can then possibly be developed on multiple platforms. That seems to be happening more and more. And there are interesting online 
platforms, and I just mentioned this briefly at the end of the book, although I, it was a shame I couldn't look at this in more detail, the new online spaces in which writers are continuing to kind of perhaps write in traditional forms, use these kinds of traditional manuals, but perhaps also developing new techniques and sharing those techniques in relation to these new kinds of um, digital and online platforms and possibilities. And there's no doubt that those those platforms are proliferating at this point in time. I was just reading an article this morning about the development of things like Amazon Prime and Netflix as these new spaces, which are kind of almost, the article was talking about, they're the new auteurs in some way, these new kinds of platforms, the kinds of work that they're commissioning. So I think it's quite fertile. It's quite fertile ground. And I don't doubt that, you know, kind of the smart, Screenwriter manuals of the future will be, I think, much more geared to the creative craft, right, possibilities of that that kind of writing. Mm-hmm. I just have one more question about the how-to manuals because I find it so fascinating. And that, did you notice any kind of awareness in these how-to manuals or discussion of the type of uphill climb that most screenwriters face? when they're trying to break in the industry. In other words, is there an acknowledgement of the degree of labor precarity, shall we say, in the screenwriting industry? Or were they simply more aspirational, shall we say, talking about if you do these things, you'll have a shot. There's no guarantee, but you'll have a shot. Yeah, I mean, this is where I... I find this very interesting. I, I would say overall, I would argue that they are aspirational, right? Because I, I, I found periodically the, the, the address of these manuals, the way they are formulated is often, um, it, there is some acknowledgement of the difficulty, that the, the, the struggles that one might face as a screenwriter, the hurdles that one has to jump over, the, the kind of autonomy you have to give up, the fact that you have to watch your script babies being ripped limb from limb. I mean, the language, again, is very kind of colourful and interesting. Uh, But I suppose that kind of, those kinds of stories which might then lead to to a more sustained critique of something like, yeah, precarity, long-term, ongoing structural precarity in these industries, is I found was generally always foreclosed or kind of um, repatriated in the manuals themselves. So for one example is that often those stories are being told by very, very successful screenwriters, right? So it was often a, oh, you'll struggle and things will be so difficult, but one day keep going and then you'll have your big break. And if you write the right script at the right time, following these handy steps that have been presented in the manual, then, you know, ideally success will be yours and look at me, I did it. So it's often the, the expert voice, I think, was a very powerful way, you know, to kind of then... Yeah, kind of stop the stop any kind of a of a critique, um, and I suppose also what I found in the manuals, and it's not simply in the manuals, although they are often a way I think in which these kinds of messages are circulated. Um, there's that powerful message um, that William, that the phrase from William Goldman, um, that no one knows anything, and I found that quite an interesting phrase and one again that I think is very effective in shutting down a sustained critique 
right? So you get, okay, well, here are the handy formulae, here are the rules. Here, this is as far as we can take you, and we've offered you these tools for your individual writing skill. But what I found is then there was often not much discussion about, okay, so what does the industry look like today? Um, should you join a union? Should you be, join a guild? What might that kind of a life look like and what are the benefits of that? I mean, not to say that some manuals didn't, didn't offer that as an important kind of possibility for screenwriters to sustain a living, but very much I found that the, the manuals were addressed at the individual, self-responsible, autonomous writer and not really kind of necessarily then offering a, a critique or, or looking really at the kind of collective, the collaborative perhaps possibilities that I think would be, you know, when we have writers coming together and perhaps then when we have writers in guilds, which are still, you know, generally strong in the US, although perhaps that strength is lessening, that's the forum where, for example, a sustained critique of precarity in these industries is possible. And it seems at the moment it's it's not happening in the manuals, right? And that's, I think, a missed opportunity for sure. Right. It's an individually focused uh, address rather than talking about the business or the profession as a whole and the kind of collaboration that's likely to to happen as a result of submitting your script. Yeah, that's right. And it's difficult. Again, I think that's it's something of an unfair critique because, of course, you know, it would be more difficult, and I acknowledge this, to, to, write, to write a how-to manual that is, that is about what is it like to kind of rewrite and develop in relation to other people. I mean, that's a much more – those collaborative processes are much more contingent. It's not so easy to boil that down to a kind of a nice, discrete set of – formulae and steps. So I understand why these manuals are generally kind of directed at individuals. Um, but I do think within them that, that, that the disciplining that goes on is also quite an effective way to stop a critique. And I think more critique of these, these kinds of, certainly labor precarity in these industries would be really welcome, especially from these kinds of very powerful gurus. So that's a nice segue into uh, one of my last questions, which is at the end of the book, uh, this is your book turns sociological in a very fascinating way. When you do look at the industry and when you look at the industry, you find some very troubling trends in terms of the amount of inequality, all types of inequality in screenwriting, both in the United States, specifically in the United States, but also perhaps in the UK as well. What kinds, what kinds of inequality did you notice? And is it better in the US or better in the UK or pretty much the same? Well, yeah, I, this is um, a, a kind of a chapter I felt compelled to, to write, really. And in a way, it shifts gear, uh, as you say, into a kind of a more socio-economy. So it's a little bit of a shift from looking at, for example, how to be a screenwriter manuals. But I suppose progressively over the course of, of the project, I became more and more troubled. Um, not only when I looked at these statistics, the kind of general statistics from, from both the US and the UK of, of what the sociological profile of the screenwriting profession in these, in these industries looks like, um, but also over the course of looking at those statistics, you know, it was becoming worse rather than better, it, it seemed to me a lot of the time. So uh, in particular in the book, I focus on gender inequality, um, uh, although I, I would hope that this is kind of just the, the start of some more interesting inquiry that would also look at more intersectional inequalities because, of course, we can't really look at something like gender inequality without thinking about 
inequalities of race and ethnicity, age, class is a really interesting one and becoming more so. Um, but the inequalities are, are really troubling. And um, I suppose there are lots of, you know, kind of headline statements about the lack of women, for example, screenwriters in the US and the UK. But it is, it's troubling to me that those statistics um, are are not good and are not really getting better either. Because I suppose on the one hand, if, if, if we come back to thinking about creative labour generally, and some of my other colleagues have, have looked at this in really interesting ways, there is, there is some kind of, there's another set of myths of, of, about the fact that creativity is open to all, that it is right, egalitarian, that it is um, possible for us all to harness our own creative drives and energies if, if we just try. But then looking at the statistics, I mean, very few women still are able to sustain a career as a screenwriter in the US or the UK. And the statistics are about even, and they, they sort of momentarily shift, but it's something I think like 12 to 15% um, women who, who are consistently live, making a living as a screenwriter in both in both places. It's a little, the statistics are a bit better for television. So again, that that's, tells us something, I think, about the relative security possibly, and also perhaps it is, a, it is an easier place within which women and men can can sustain a living. Um, but that those kind of statistics really fly in the face of, of, of the image of, of this kind of a creative profession as as open, as, as, a, as a free place in which ideas can be, you know, kind of fostered and developed in which different voices and kind of um, bodies can be seen and heard. And although I, I feel like in the book I was only able to really offer a, an overview, and, and, and I, it, it's regretful in a sense, although I hope to continue and do some more work on this, to go back to, a, to a, an earlier point, I think what is really important um, for all of us who are interested in, in production and labour and, and so on is thinking about and trying to make links between those that sociology, those statistics, who is in and who's out in a particular industry, and then what kinds of scripts, images... Um, narratives do we then see on screen? I know that's different, meth dif difficult methodologically and empirically, but um, it's important to think about, you know, if this is an industry in which producers are then producing images of the world and narratives and voices, um, there are some real problems if that voice, those voices are very narrow and are often coming from actually a very small segment of the population, and that is the case in the US and the UK. So at least I start to try and point in that final chapter to some ways in which we could perhaps make some links between production and, and representation. And I suppose what worries me, and I think worries lots of us who are interested in creative labour, is that often the language of inequality and discrimination things like sexism and racism, are often also invisible, I think, in these work worlds. I mean, if you are a freelancer, if you're already in a precarious industry, and as a screenwriter, your next job is based on reputation and on right on being a good worker and getting your work done on, on time and so on, it's perhaps, and I've heard this, you know, kind of in interviews and so on, it's it's often not good to perhaps start talking about sexual discrimination or ethnic discrimination or feeling discriminated because of your class background. So again, there's another issue of invisibility there. Um, and I think that's a real concern for, 
for the industry and for those working within the industry going forward. Not just, I mean, there are lots of interesting initiatives going on. I try and mention a few of them in the book in terms of making these issues more visible, making these statistics more visible, but um, I think it is an, an ongoing issue. Going back to the how-to books, I, my guess is that if your book is next to the how-to books, it may be one of the few books about screenwriting written by a woman in actuality. All those guru books also seem to be almost exclusively written by men, as if to exacerbate the very inequalities that you're talking about. Indeed, and I kind of, there were a few moments I, I, I was wondering, uh, I couldn't quite believe it. I mean, often in these books, um, in the manuals, uh, the screen, the masculine pronouns are used routinely, right? I mean, the screenwriter is, is assumed to be a male, the, the reader is assumed to be a male. Uh, and the number of times I've seen this also in, in interviews with screenwriters, um, right, talking about trends in the industry, it's a, it's a list of men. And I think that's because there are so many more men writing than women. But those kinds of things, are it, it's really interesting in the manuals how something like, yeah, inequality is, is certainly not, not an agenda item at all. And those, those powerful male gurus, I think, in a way, perpetuate some of those kinds of uh, inequalities in quite powerful ways. And to say perhaps that there are simply more men interested in screenwriting is, I think, totally off when you look at, for example, research on fan writing, fan fiction, and fan cultures, where almost all of the people writing these fan stories online are indeed women who are practicing the craft of writing, yet have none of the institutional protections, the reputation building, any of those kind of institutional uh, enablements that help them to make their writing into something of, uh, something of a profession. Absolutely. It's incredible. And again, I find it so interesting, and I, I at least tried to signal this in that, that final chapter, the myths that, that, that one hears in the industry, oh, yeah, just women are interested in telling different kinds of stories. And, of course, those different kinds of stories are then seen to be, well, not as commercially viable. You know, our audiences don't want to hear about those personal stories. You know, so, again, these myths were, oh, well, now screenwriters are writing for teenage boys. So, you know, and, and men are just kind of better at, at, at kind of entering that world. I mean, all of these myths are kind of circulated and recirculated, and they – on the, uh, clearly on the face of it are, are wrong. I mean, you know, any kind of basic statistical analysis would show you this, but again, I think the myths are quite, uh, are often more powerful, right, than, than the facts, and they help them perpetuate, I think, these, these same and really problematic forms of inequality, and, and it obviously has direct consequences for who is hired again and again for, for what kinds of writing. This is uh, really fascinating. I could talk about this for hours, but I know we're getting close to the end of our of our uh, time. Can you tell me, Bridget, a little bit about uh, what's next for you? Where do you go from here? What types of projects or questions are you envisioning for uh, the next year? Let's say. Great question. This is yeah. It's it's interesting when when you finish a project and think about about what next. Um, Luckily, I, I, there's a couple of things on the horizon. I'm continuing it with my interest in uh, inequality in cultural and creative industries generally. So I'll be working with um, with a colleague and friend, uh, Professor Kate Oakley, here in the UK. We're developing a, a network and a seminar series which will look at at the dynamics of inequality and exclusion, especially in the in the UK cultural and creative industries. 
Um, so that's something really interesting. And, and what we're really hoping is to start a broader dialogue with uh, institutions and organisations like the unions here in the UK that are representing lots of kinds of creative workers. In terms of research, um, I mean, I mentioned I'm from New Zealand and I still have a real interest in um, New Zealand media production, film and television. There have been some really interesting developments. You may know the third Hobbit film is about to come out and I was previously really interested and I wrote about the um, production of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So I'm going to be back in New Zealand to do some new field work, um, which at this point hopefully will be interviews with both film and television workers in Wellywood, uh, which is the New Zealand uh, film production uh, centre led by Peter Jackson. So I'm kind of going back in a sense to see what is happening in New Zealand um, as a kind of transnational production location. So I think those two projects will be kind of running simultaneously and hopefully we'll see some interesting connections between them. That's great. That sounds fascinating. Uh, well, we're at the end of our time, but Bridget, thank you so much for your time and for talking with us about your book. John, thanks uh, for having me. This is I appreciate it. So my guest today was Bridget Connor. She is a lecturer in culture, media, and creative industries at King's College in London. And we've been talking about a wonderful and fascinating book called Screenwriting, Creative Labor, and Professional Practice. It's published by Rutledge. You can find it hopefully in bookstores everywhere or certainly online. Have a look so, in the screenwriting section. Look at this, look in the screenwriting section, or if you're in the United States, maybe look at a scholarly bookstore or try and find it online. Uh, again, I've been your host. My name is John Sullivan. So on behalf of the New Books in Media and Communication and my colleague, Dr. Jeff Pooley, I'd like to say thanks for listening. Please stay tuned to this podcast for new interviews with authors uh, coming up regularly once a month or even more often than that. So thanks for listening. On behalf of the New Books Network, this is John Sullivan saying so long. 